Welcome to Treasure Mountain, the podcast that inspires and guides us to find the treasure within human experience. I'm your host, Sol Hanna. In this episode, I wanted to talk about the importance of community when it comes to both finding the path of practice, but also in terms of having the support to stick with it and to grow with it. I've been practicing Buddhism for 30 years, and I have had a lot of contacts in Western Buddhist groups. And whilst these groups and these individuals are doing amazing work to establish the Buddha Sasana in the West, no group that I've seen has really got the amount of social coordination and support as groups in traditional Buddhist communities in the East. So for this episode, I've invited Ni Wern Koo, who has been involved with the Buddhist Gem Fellowship in Malaysia for many years, and more recently with the Center for Research and Dhamma Leadership Enhancement. Ni Wern first encountered Buddhism in his early teens whilst reading about the life of the Buddha in a bookstore. His interest led him to join the Subang Jaya Buddhist Association and subsequently played a pioneering role in setting up the youth section of the SGBA. He has participated in and taken the lead in various Buddhist youth programs and is a past chairman of the Intercollege and Varsity Camp of the Buddhist Gem Fellowship, the BGF. He was also a committee member of the BGF in charge of the learning and development portfolio. And we'll be learning more about the BGF in this interview. Niwern is currently the head of Dhamma Leadership Development under the Center for Research and Dhamma Leadership Enhancement, or CRADLE for short. And this aims to bring transformation to Buddhist community through developing and enhancing Buddhist leadership. And as you can see, Niwern has decades of experience in terms of being involved in and supporting Buddhist communities in Malaysia. So join us as we learn about creating and sustaining strong, supportive Buddhist communities. Welcome to Treasure Mountain Podcast, Niwern. How are you today? I'm good. So uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's a privilege and honor to uh, be on your, your uh, show here. <laughs> well, we're so pleased that you've taken the time to join us, and I'm really looking forward to finding out what you know about uh, building strong Buddhist communities. Look, uh, I'm glad that you've joined us today because I think uh, the Buddhist communities in Malaysia, in my experience, are a great example of how a thriving community can support people at different stages of life and to support people to engage more deeply with the practice of the Eightfold Path. Uh, you've been a member of the Buddhist Gem Fellowship in Malaysia for many years now. Could you give us an overview of the kinds of services, activities and resources that the BGF offers its community? Yeah, um, thanks for, for that recognition. Um, I, I think um, you're right to say in Malaysia, um, we are organized, or rather Buddhist groups are organized in a very communi community kind of approach. We tend to be very social in the way we organize our activities. Um, not just the, uh, the one organization, but I think most organizations in, the, in our country, in my country at least, uh, organize it in a very community-based approach. I'm not sure about the West. I, I've not been in direct contact with the Western Buddhists uh, that much. But here, we do a lot of community activities. 
So for example, we tend to focus a lot more on say coming together on a Sunday for uh, what we call a puja service and everybody do will come and participate and we'll, we'll be very happy to participate in a very elaborate, perhaps uh, chanting of the, uh, the various uh, uh, chantings. And then we will probably have some Dharma talks and we'll, we'll probably end with some good uh, dana or offering, food offering to the monks. And then we will eat and then we'll disperse and we'll keep repeating those things. So my little involvement in, in the Buddhist Gem Fellowship and other societies in general uh, has been a lot more focused on reaching out to the community to make sure that we bring them in and then we give them the Dharma and then they will then go back and hopefully there's some takeaway for them in their daily practice. So yes, that's in, in general how we organize ourselves. Now, uh, I know that Buddhist organizations in the West are usually fairly basic because often they're quite new. They may or may not support resident Sangha. They offer a place where people can hear teachings and learn about meditation, which of course is fantastic. But the Buddhist Gem Fellowship offers groups that cater to community members at different stages of life. And I note that you've been involved particularly in youth groups in the past. Could you explain a bit more about that approach which targets different stages of life or different stages in um, society? Yeah, sure. Um, I think in Malaysia, one of the things that we, well, to, to give you a bit of context, the Malaysian Buddhists are largely uh, Chinese or Malaysian Chinese. Uh, because of our heritage we brought with, you know, our forefathers brought with them the whole Chinese culture, which includes Buddhism is, is one of them. And so when we bring uh, our, our self and also our families to, uh, let's say, a Buddhist temple, we tend to bring the entire family. Mm. So normally most centers would try to cater for different uh, age groups. Like, uh, for example, if you're a parent, then you will have activities for those in your parents. If you're a working adult, you have activities for the working adults. If you're children, then we have the Dharma schools, which is quite a big thing here because we, we do have parents who actually send their children to the the center for Dharma education. And then you do have uh, activities catered for retirees. So you can see that most societies or Buddhist societies are organized to cater for different levels of the community. And that includes also catering for visiting uh, monks or monastics. So you would find that most Buddhist centers here, the way we build them is that if we have the space, we will normally, in most cases, you reserve at least one or two rooms for monastics. So any visiting monks, uh, that will be for them. And nobody's, nobody's allowed to, to go in there <laughs> to mm -hmm. use their, their things. So that's how we organize ourselves. It's a very traditional uh, kind of a spirit, but in a very Malaysian way as well, because we, we, we are, one of the things that we have in Malaysia very unique is we, uh, we somehow are very comfortable with all different Buddhist traditions. Uh, from the various lineages. Uh, we have the Burmese tradition, we have the Sri Lankan tradition, we have the Thai tradition. We also have the Chinese uh, traditions that are very, very much in ingrained in our society itself. So you can see that that's the kind of variety we have in our country. Uh, already, we are already a multiracial, multi-religious uh, country. And even among the Buddhists, we also have this multi traditions and different kinds of you know so we do cater for different communities in general yes i think just a bit of a side point but i do think that's an important point to mention is that you know malaysia is at such a crossroads like geographically and culturally and i really feel that the bgf in particular was able to take on board teachings from you know burma and thailand and sri lanka and 
and to have different visiting teachers and then also even to you know, influences from Mahayana and so forth. There's much more yes. openness there. And that really has come across, I feel, in some of the um, the work you've done in like um, free distribution books and those kinds of things. Did you want to elaborate upon that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, well, the Buddhist Gem Fellowship um, was one of the um, early societies that were quite focused on Dharma outreach. And, and they took a very early position to be non-sectarian, hmm. uh, meaning that it, it, it didn't have to be bound to any traditions. Uh, like if you were to have a very traditional temple per se, uh, it could be a Thai temple, Burmese temple, or Sri Lankan temple. Usually there is a lot of uh, traditions attached to those. Uh, there's a traditional uh, identity attached to it. But I think when you when we organized the Buddhist Gem Fellowship, or rather my predecessor, I mean, the, the seniors who organized themselves, they decided upfront that it was non-sectarian. So yes, uh, they welcomed teachers from uh, Mahayana, uh, we, I think I did remember one of those years, um, the Plum Village monastics came and we organized a retreat and, and, and they were here and we, we did that. We also had monastics from uh, Tibet, the Lamas, and then the uh, Zen tradition, the Koreans, uh, as well as the Chinese. Uh, and then we had also the various Theravada groups as well. So from the, from the very beginning, we took a very non-sectarian position. So that actually helped to have a wide reach uh, for especially for people who didn't want to be too bound by a certain tradition. So uh, by and large, we actually uh, catered a lot more for those who are professionals, who wanted maybe a Buddhism to be more accessible rather than, you know, the, the usual uh, following the traditional approach. So mm. that that was that was a fortunate thing uh, for us, I, I would say. It's an interesting mishmash of things insofar as you've got that openness and that uh, kind of, uh, you know, in terms of how open the world is. I mean, Malaysia is right there at the at the forefront of that, of globalization. Um, and of course, as I say, you had a because of it's a largely English speaking community. You've done all this translation work and put all these teachings, which are available now in, in other English speaking countries, which has been fantastic. But at the same time, you've still got those traditions. It's a very when I go to Malaysia, I've really felt like there's a very strong Buddhist traditions there at the same time. And I did want to just step back a little bit because I wanted to talk about those groups. I mean, what do you know of in terms of, could you give us a little idea of like what would happen at a, a Dharma school for children that's different for a youth group, which is like, I guess, just out of high school into the university years? What kind of ways would you cater uh, for those different groups, those different age groups, for example? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I think there are two things here. On one hand, we have the various traditions. Uh, that means, uh, in general, most Malaysians, I, I would say in general, there are exceptions, but in general, most Malaysians are quite comfortable with the different traditions. Mm. I don't think we have much problems uh, assimilating ourselves, you know, quite flexible in that sense. There is a preference for a certain tradition, though. So it, somehow it, it happened that somehow or other the, the English-speaking uh, Chinese communities in Malaysia tend towards the Theravada, the Pali traditions, whereas the Chinese-speaking have a tendency to be on the Mahayana. Uh, that seems to be a very peculiar uh, kind of, uh, you know, I would say evolution. And uh, so I can only say that I my involvement a lot more from the English-speaking uh, side. And therefore, when they organize, let's say, a Dharma school uh, and children come on a Sunday, just like 
you know, going to the Sunday school and they will learn uh, and they will have probably a syllabus uh, or rather a, a kind of a, a session guide, I would say, uh, that they were probably taken from some tradition somewhere. So usually we, we our references are largely Theravada mainly. Uh, and then, uh, and then of course, they will learn the basic things such as uh, the sila and then do some dana and all the various values and they learn that. When the children graduate after they finish their, maybe completed the high school, they will probably go to uh, college, universities, and then you need to establish them differently. And that's the challenge because for youths, they do not want, they, they have to, they want to have their own identity. And therefore, uh, youth sections or youth groups are organized quite differently. Uh, they don't necessarily learn Dharma the same way as the children would learn. And so we, we do have to cater very differently. Uh, very interesting is that for the youth sections, uh, they like to organize it themselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they like to have more independence. They want to do things their way. And, uh, and therefore, uh, many of the activities have to be catered to whatever they want to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and does, uh, you mentioned also that there is some um, support for retirees. Do you know anything about the work that's being done there? Because often that's a big issue in the West is people get to retirement age and they become quite lonely. Uh, it's really good that you've actually got something to activities to support people of that age. Yeah, some centres do cater for that age group uh, retirees, uh, especially when they have a large population there. So my centre that I live nearby, uh, Subanjaya, Buddhist association, they do classes like qi gong. They have uh, they they have a they have ping pong, mm. uh, very social activities. They do have say calligraphy classes, and line dancing, and there some of them even volunteer to do uh, traditional Thai Chinese medicine. So they it, some centers do function like a community center catered for the retirees that are, are maybe members of that Buddhist society. And so, and normally they offer this for free so that people can come and be part of that, that community. So it's not unusual to find that even uh, a lot of these places do cater for such things if the population is quite, uh, they, they have a large uh, retiree mm. population there. Um, although at the same time, they tr do try to offer some Dharma talks and some Dharma sharing, but by and large, the retirees do come because <laughs> you do offer those services for them. Yeah. Right, right. Now, I, I, it seems to me that there's a, an emphasis on engaging people. Does this kind of translate into also like, for instance, getting people to practice more assiduously, like going on a meditation retreat or something or and and or does it lead them to doing volunteer work? I mean, we mentioned like doing translations and getting free publication books or, or other types of, uh, you know, giving. Does it, does that yeah. lead to that? I, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, whilst we yes uh, we engage the community, the, the people do come and then we they do have things that they can do, but it depends on the interest level. So uh, I can only say from my own observations that many of them are interested in providing some service of sorts. So if you're a, a retiree or if you're belonging to certain certain interest levels they like to go into to cooking they like to cook and you know offer some uh, lunch for uh, devotees uh, people who come for uposatha practice and then they will just and every sunday for example they will be the one that you know do the dana do the offering to monks and sing things like that and then there'll be some people who are very interested in just helping out to clean the center and so on and so forth um 
I would say there'll be lesser interest, uh, in, uh, say, in things like doing, I, I don't think we do a lot of translations that maybe certain groups of people, we do have our venerable Agachita, one of our uh, Malaysian local monks who does good talks, and then somebody will record and they do some some uh, editing as well as transcribing those talks. So there is a, there are groups that do that today. Uh, so we do cater for people who want to do some voluntary work as well. And I uh, just want to mention the other one is uh, maybe they uh, do Dharma talks. So some of us who have that capacity, they would offer, you know, and do some Dharma talks and they get uh, Dharma learning sessions organized uh, by the, so, so that you can bring people together. So I think the whole idea is we want people to come. We always like to build people to come to the center to be part of us. And then we want to engage them. We want to get to know them and then, after that, we follow up with them and then we engage them in many other activities as well. You know, so so that's, that seems to be our pattern. Uh, we, we, we don't necessarily want to look at the individuals, but just also uh, as a community. Even if we do long uh, meditation retreats, uh, we have a tendency to organize it for a large group. Ah, so, like how, so, how many? How many would, would often go on a retreat? And, well, that depends on the teacher. <laughs> 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 so popular a, teachers, a popular, teacher. <laughs> popular teachers like Ajahn Brahm, you get you, you got to be on the waiting list all the time. Uh, you you don't have a space, uh, so you normally have to book a, a Buddhist monastery that it has that space so that people can be there. But there are also some retreats that are maybe uh, lesser. You have lesser crowd, but also well attended by some of the people who want to go for those retreats. So yes, uh, when we organize retreats, we tend to like, like to have more, more people to come on board and be part of those retreats. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, we've mentioned that the Buddhist Gem Fellowship is located in Malaysia and Southeast Asia, and it's principally an English speaking community. Now, and I, I want to bring up this question because um, a lot of the people who are listening, many would have a local temple or a local monk, but there are many people out there online. They don't have a local, uh, a local temple or a local monastery or a, or a monk or a nun that they can go to. Now, it's quite interesting that, you know, the BGF uh, does tend to invite teachers from across the region. Um, could you explain how that's worked, inviting lots of different teachers, and what impact having a range of visiting teachers has had on the recent development of Buddhism in Malaysia? Um, I think Malaysian Buddhist community also has evolved over the years. Uh, I think those, I must give credit to our late uh, Dr. K. Sri Dhammananda, Venerable K. Sri Dhammananda, who was, uh, we, we fondly remember him as uh, Chief Reverend or the late Chief, now we call him. And he was a Sri Lankan. Uh, he came to Malaya, Malaya actually before independence. Uh, of Malay before our in country's independence, he was already here, and he was instrumental in bringing uh, the the interests of Buddhism uh, to to Malaysians in general. Because I think before him and before some other venerables from the Chinese speaking groups, um, in the early uh, or rather mid nineteen uh, hundreds, they they didn't have or rather a lot of Malaysians Buddhists uh, didn't have that uh, Buddhist literacy. I would call it. We, we, we don't have a lot of knowledge about Buddhism, but along came people like him who brought uh, the Dharma learning to interest to the to the community. And today, thanks to him, we do have a thriving, uh, at least a knowledgeable and practicing Buddhist community. 
So if not because of his effort to bring Dhamma uh, to the people in a very practical way, I would say he would still be doing the usual rituals, go to the temple, put the joysticks, bow three times, and then we leave the temple. That, that seems to be our... Uh, what our parents and our grandparents have been teaching us to do all these years. But then we had this resurgence in, in Buddhist uh, learning interests. So today, what we are trying to do is to keep that interest alive. Now, back to your question about uh, the BGF or how, how they were organizing. They they would wanted to keep this kind of Dharma learning alive. Uh, the late chief is no more around, but we now can get uh, different t- teachers from all over to be giving sessions teachings and all that and a lot more i would say they don't stay long but they do give uh, a teaser of what the dharma is here and there and then people do pick it up and then they will go back to their respective centers they will probably practice on their own and yeah so so i, I just want to challenge i wanted to ask yeah. just about in terms of the mechanics of that so you have a teacher that you're interested in it could be in i don't know sri lanka or it could be thailand or it could be I don't know, Australia, and then you you invite them. Do you have a place where they can stay and a program of teaching during one, when they're there? What's the, what, how does that just work, just yeah. the mechanics of it? Yeah, so uh, if a monk comes to visit, uh, then uh, normally they will have a program, and that program would include either uh, a, uh, they will organize a retreat or they will organize a series of Dharma talks, or they will do, uh, say, short uh, engagement sessions. That depends on the, on the monastic's uh, preference and also their competency. So if I have, say, Ajahn Brahmali, who comes from Perth, and every year the BGF would organize this sutta retreat, which is very well attended, and, and then we'll learn. And then he'll go, and then we will engage other teachers along the mm-hmm. way. I, I don't have that continuation of, uh, say, uh, uh, Dharma learning in the long term by one teacher, uh, we do have a continuation of Dharma learning by different teachers. So you, we offer, I mean, we, they, they offer these things and then it depends on the, uh, the individual's practitioners. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's just very interesting. I think some people out there, you know, if, they, if they're thinking like, well, where can I get a monk? Maybe that's the first option is to just invite them for a weekend or something like that and yeah. uh, see if you can support them for that weekend. And that's always a very good start rather than thinking you've got to establish a monastery, which is a pretty daunting prospect. Um, Absolutely. Now, the BGF, we've mentioned that they have very good social programs. We've also mentioned that, uh, I guess, there's that traditional sense of, of, of respecting the rituals and so forth. Now, in many religious communities, not just Buddhist communities, that's where things stop. That's all they focus on is rituals and socializing. But the BGF has really actively sought to engage people in the practice of Buddhism. How has it done that in recent decades? Yeah, yes, uh, you you can, again, it's, it's generalizing it, but I, I think I, I, I do agree that we, we do have this uh, tendency to lean towards the rituals, the ceremonies, and uh, also the festivals. Mm. Uh, and yeah, Dhamma practice probably will take a secondary thing so but i think the bgf uh, met because most of the early leaders uh, were students of the late venerable k sri damananda and i think the impact he had on the people was that you know the focus was back to dhamma learning so when the lay community who now organized uh, the bgf and also other centers today uh, has uh, taken on this kind of uh, direction to say let's focus a lot more on helping people to learn Dhamma 
So when we shifted that focus, uh, there's a little less uh, emphasis on the rituals per se. And uh, so the rituals are, will still be there because we, we do respect uh, our rituals. Uh, we do respect the traditions and the cultural aspect of it. Uh, so before any sessions, we always have a puja. We always, we will never start even a simple meeting, you know, before we start a meeting, we will do the usual, uh, you know, chanting. And then we will end with the traditional Pali, you know, chanting just to do the aspirations and dedications. But the session itself is a lot more focused on Dharma learning. So there are groups that are, today, in fact, uh, thanks to those influences uh, have today tried to make uh, Dharma learning a lot more the focus rather than the ceremonies by itself. Um, I would say Malaysians in general, uh, when it comes to Dharma learning, uh, maybe uh, uh, it's, it's uh, not as well attended as you compare to, let's say you organize those big events. <laughs> mm. So for example, if it's Katina, you know, Katina is a very big event here today. Uh, it's it's huge, uh, right? You you have you have people who sponsor the, the robes and they offer the robes and and it's 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 a massive event every year, hmm. you know. So we, we we do love these things uh, at the same time. So we do have a mix of these kinds of very traditional approaches, but at the same time there are groups, including BGF and many others, who will also focus a lot more on the deepening our uh, understanding of the dharma. Yeah, right. Including because so it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a mixed bag of, of all this at the same time. It is a mixed bag, but at the same time, those things are not necessarily um, antagonistic. They can be supportive of one another. Uh, yeah. And also, I, I, I know that you, you really do emphasize doing meditation a lot as well. So, I mean, that would be a common uh, feature of many of your sessions would be doing meditation as well. Is that right? Yes, uh, yes. There are uh, there are uh, groups that are quite meditation focused. Um, uh, I would I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that we will do meditation every single session. I think that that's not that doesn't seem to come across. We'll definitely do a puja. We'll do a talk. We'll answer some questions and we'll we'll go back. Uh, but there are groups that are quite meditation focused, and they do have regular meditation practices as well as uh, maybe meditation retreats. And usually, uh, these are the people that are a little bit more focused on uh, doing uh, you know, meditation retreats. Uh, so you do have a contrast. There are very much intellectual learners uh, on one hand. On the other hand, you have the, the meditators. Yeah, mm. uh, It's very seldom you find both at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you do, it's a blessing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Now, at the moment, you have uh, become head of Dharma Leadership Development for a new organization that was founded in 2019. That's called Cradle. Center for Research and Dharma Leadership Enhancement. What is the main aim of Cradle in Malaysia? Okay, uh, the Cradle, um, the, the, the acronym is Cradle, C-R-A-D-L-E, and there's a D apostrophe in the beginning. D, so we call it D Cradle. Uh, the D is just uh, our tribute back to Dhammananda, actually, uh, Venerable Dhammananda. Uh, we pay tribute to him because he is the one of the founding fathers of Malaysian missionary work, Malaysian Buddhist missionary work. So we want to dedicate this center to him. Uh, the Cradle was founded by uh, our uh, Didi uh, Tan Huat Chai. Huat Chai is our founding, uh, today the founding director. And the main focus was really one of the gaps we uh, just to give you the context again, the gaps we notice in the Buddhist community is that we do have a lot of people organizing activities. 
various Buddhist centers today are quite active, organizing lots of activities. Um, but we do notice that every year the activities just keep repeating themselves. You know, so you at the right time you do the wesa, you do the katina, you probably do uh, a few other kind of uh, big things, and then you probably do a few other sangika dana along the way, and that's, and and that seems to be their main focus. But uh, we what we notice is that many uh, Buddhist societies don't have necessarily a kind of a sense of direction and mission, um, uh, in in a in a way that uh, brings the uh, transformation to the to the individuals in the community. So we felt that uh, this gap need to be addressed. Uh, from a leadership perspective and so we the center is set up to enhance uh, the leadership of the, uh, the the buddhist leaders so people who come to the programs will be kind of trained and developed in terms of their leadership of the community so that they will when they go back and lead those communities uh, maybe with a different sense of focus and mindset that could be one of the things that we intend to do so really, it's all about transforming and taking the Buddhist community to another level. That's in a nutshell what we're trying to do. Right. Um, you've got a special program that you mentioned when we were talking prior to the interview uh, to help people in various leadership roles. I mean, they're already in these roles and you called this GLAD. What is GLAD? Yeah. Could you tell us about that? <laughs> GLAD is a, is a program we call it. Uh, uh, it's an, another acronym. It's called Great Leadership Awakening with Dharma. So uh, it's a four-day uh, leadership program, but this is not a, a type of leadership program where we talk about how do you delegate, how do you lead, and, and things like that. This is a very Buddhist one. We try to go back to the Buddha as a source of inspiration, uh, and we try to re remind the people who come to this program that the Buddha was a great leader. And so he, he led this uh, multinational corporation called the Sangha, and he, you know, he had structures, he had systems, he had direction, he had focus. And so if we take on the Buddha as a great leader, then perhaps we can do what we need to do in the community with that sense of leadership. And therefore, that, that in essence is what GLAD program is about. And we like the word GLAD because GLAD means gladness of the heart. And uh, a, a Dhamma leader, in our opinion, needs to have gladness and because often we find that some people who have served in a buddhist uh, center of buddhist society for a good number of years uh, they will have a tendency to have burnout he says mm. and so they say okay i i do not want to be the president anymore uh, next person can you please be the president and then good luck to you and mm. <laughs> and i wish you all the best but but that that that's a sign that maybe they didn't they didn't really uh, you know they don't really know that what's their purpose you know i'm not just a president but i have a role to play in the community and that uh, playing playing a role whether you're a president you're a teacher you are a you know a volunteer uh, that role is a leadership role so what we're trying to do really is to impress on everyone that that role needs to be played so that uh, the uh, community will uh, have that benefit. Yeah. Mm, right, right. That's it's, it's amazing, actually, a four-day program for leaders. I mean, my, my experience uh, is that people who end up in the leadership roles are the ones who uh, can't get away from <laughs> doing it because no one else wants oh, to do yes, it. Oh, yes. <laughs> so it's you, great. You end up having to do most of the work yourself and, you know, you yeah. don't get support. And that's that's the age-old uh, you know, problem we find 
you know, in the community in general. So we are trying to address that by saying, look, you know, you, you need to have a purpose. Uh, and that purpose is a higher purpose than just being the committee member. You know, mm. that purpose is a leadership role that you need to play. And, and we are trying to give a sense of mission. And again, taking on the Buddha as an example, uh, he was on a mission. Uh, he, mm. he wasn't just here just to do a, a, some teachings here and there, but he was really on a mission to transform the community, to change the community. And But I must say, uh, what we are trying to do here is quite uh, uh, ahead of its time, because uh, I don't think many Buddhist organizations do have this focus. Uh, I'm not sure about the West, but here we, we oh, don't no have uh, such such things here. <laughs> no, I do. I do think it's ahead it's of its time. I do think it's ahead of its time, and I do think it's meeting a need. I mean, you know, when I was on the president of the Buddhist Society of WA, I had no idea what I was doing, and I did burn out. <laughs> and uh, it was you had to keep yourself going. But I think that emphasis also on you know, connecting not just with the the nuts and bolts of organisation, but also the purpose and that need to, you know, people do see you as a leader and you do need to act in a way which is a good example and a support. But of course, sometimes leaders need support as well. So I think what you're doing is fantastic in that regard. Um, look, you've been engaged, actively engaged in the Buddhist community for many years now. Uh, what do you see as maybe some weaknesses or what are you hoping to develop further in the years ahead? Yeah, I think our very strength uh, here in Malaysia is also our very weakness at the same time uh, and also our blind spot. I must be very candid to say that uh, whilst we we are a very community-based uh, kind of uh, 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 approach, uh, we do bring people closer in the community. But I think in contrast with maybe where you're coming from, uh, we have... Uh, maybe less emphasi emphasizing on on uh, on on the uh, deepening the dharma learning aspect. Uh, we tend to be quite good in supporting the the, the monastics and the, the community in general. So there is a risk that we may tend to be too focused on the the traditions and running of our activities and getting to the routines rather than being critical. So perhaps one characteristic you'll find in in, in lot of us in our community is that we tend to be less critical uh, we we are quite accepting of, of, of things so if we hear something from certain teachers we are quick to accept we may ask a few questions to clarify but we, we don't necessarily uh, cast a critical eye on things that's that's the same with methodology so we we are not um, necessarily quite very good in critics critically evaluating methodologies so we tend to follow whatever has been done in the past. And then, so I think this is something we can probably learn from, from the, 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 the Western, uh, you know, count, our Western counterparts where for you, perhaps the, the, the education system has led you to be quite critical mm. of, of, of methodologies, of methods, and quite structured in the way you present your views and ideas. And that's something we can learn from because I find uh, sometimes the very strength of being very accepting alone can be a very weakness when it comes to casting that critical eye on on you know on methodology on structure on process so that's that's the thing that i find we should uh, pick up as a community mm. i think the very fact that you can thinking about it and aware of those issues is a very good sign and i mean i think yeah. we could all do that i mean we can only improve if we've um kind of look investigated and try to work out well how can we improve what are our weaknesses and uh, very often 
I think in general, religious communities aren't necessarily very good at that. So the fact that you're even thinking about it and talking about it is a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably where we want to leave it. Just any, any final words that you think we could uh, offer our listeners in terms of, you know, if, think of the person who's out there, maybe they don't have much of a community around yeah. them. What, what's something that you think that they could do to get started? Yeah, I think drawing from the Buddha himself in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Buddha did, does mention what are the principles of building a, a harmonious uh, or social community. And one of the those guidelines was uh, about uh, if the community were to meet frequently, mm. you know, coming together as a community frequently. And I think he, he of course, uh, that, that becomes one of the key things. And... And then also in other places, the Buddha does mention that the whole of the holy life is about being with good friends. So taking the cue from there, it's about hanging out with the right people. And personally, I find uh, if if you do not have a community out there, um, it's it's a little harder, I suppose, to maintain the, the kind of interest and practice of the Dhamma. Uh, and so what keeps us going really is to have a group of friends to to sort of sustain this kind of interest in in the practice because even for us uh, we can get very complacent to say oh i know the dharma already so leave me alone let me do my own practice but then we slip back into our daily routines and that's about it we, we don't we don't normally uh, go further and then after that we get into trouble then we find okay let's go back and find the dharma again <laughs> so if maybe one of the things i can point out is that on my own i also organize a very small group that meets in my house once a month, I call it the, the cell group or whatever, you know, so the group will come together and we'll do some some uh, Dharma learning, Dharma practice, and I'll lead them through. Uh, and and it, it's a regular meeting and to keeping that kind of group going will be very essential. So if you have a community, even a small one, a uh, few individuals who show similar interests, uh, I suppose getting them together, uh, getting them to come together, uh, you know, on a regular basis, uh, whether it's monthly or weekly, doesn't matter, to discuss, to share, and also to experience and to reflect. And that, that I think, keeps the interest and the momentum going for Dharma practice, which I find is very useful for me. You know, I mean, you can we can learn Dharma on our own. That's not a problem. But the one that sustains us in the practice really is to have that group of friends that we hang out with. <laughs> mm. So, and that that becomes very crucial because if we don't have that, then we always run a risk of, uh, of uh, you know, going back to our usual routines, which uh, may not sustain our dharma interests in the long term. So yeah, uh, building a community, I think, very essential. Uh, whether it's a small community or a large community, I think community becomes you know a, an important word and i think we are not too far from the buddha when we try to do this yeah that's just my little uh, reflection that i can have yeah. thank you that's uh, excellent and very wise advice and an, an excellent place to end the interview thank you thank you so much niwon ku for joining us on the treasure mountain podcast you're welcome thank you so much for having me And thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this inspiring episode of Treasure Mountain. And we learned about creating strong, supportive Buddhist communities with Niwon Kuhn. There will be more uh, links in the show notes to this episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd appreciate if you could share this episode with your friends and other people who could benefit from its sage advice. 
Treasure Mountain Podcast is part of the Everyday Dharma Network. You can find out more about Treasure Mountain Podcast by going to the links in the show notes to this episode. You can also find out uh, on the Treasure Mountain website information about all previous episodes and guests, as well as transcriptions of our interviews. If you go back to the everydaydharma.net homepage, you can discover more about the three other podcasts on the network and links to subscribe to any and all of them. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Treasure Mountain Podcast as we seek for the treasure within. Thank you.